our sermon, let me make sure that I'm on, at the end of our sermon, we are going to be taking communion together. And so if you don't have the elements, I think Anne is going to be bringing those around. And Anne, if you wouldn't mind just bringing one all the way up here, because I forgot to get mine as well. Well, when I was a little, when I was a little one, back in my elementary days, and I'm not sure how many of you could relate to this, this may have just been a localized Pittsburgh phenomenon for nerdy elementary students, of which I was a proud card-carrying member. Um, But we used to collect scratch-and-sniff stickers. Is there anybody in the room that used to collect scratch-and-sniff stickers when they were a kid? Oh, this is a trend coming back, or Olivia is a lot older than I thought she was. So you you would collect scratch-and-sniff stickers? Well, that's, that's, that's an okay collection. Somebody, anybody else? That, you would, oh, it's the littles that are collecting stuff. Man, I'm popular again. This is so great. Is there nobody my age that ever did this? Thank you very much. Yep. You got to just check. That's one of the things that comes along with having scratch and sniff sticker history is that you always got to check and see. Some things are, you know, scratch and sniff and you just don't be aware of it. But I will tell you, our communion cups are not scratch and sniff, so that's not going to work out. Okay, so seriously, nobody who's in this 40, 50-year-old range. Barb, this was way ahead of you, I'm sorry. So, you know, this was, you know, you were, you were, you know, just a young pup when I was back collecting scratch and sniff stickers. Well, okay, so I've got, I've got an education to give you guys. In this little localized section of Pittsburgh where I grew up, uh, boy, there was, there was this little trend. You could buy scratch and sniff stickers, and they all came. They were like little smiley faces, and then there were these puffy stickers, and then there were these other kinds of stickers. But it was the scratch and sniffs that, that, that you know, and we would put them in photo albums, and we would flip them through, and we would rank what were like the top 10 stickers at any one point. And I have absolutely no idea who like became the standard bearer for what were the top 10 But in my elementary school, you knew if you had one of the top 10s, and then you could trade that for others, because if you had a top 10 sticker, it was worth like two of the lesser known stickers, you know, the the lesser popular stickers. And this was was a real thing that we did, and I really thought I was going to connect with more of you on this, and boy, this is falling absolutely flat. (laughs) It's not unusual that if I'll check one of these things with Christine, who was raised in a far more wholesome uh, probably, you know, cool environment than I was, that I'll say, hey, did you do this? She's like, no. And that that's, isn't always the best gauge. So I didn't even check this one with her, and I'm, I'm going to go back to that practice. <laughs> but, you know, that was, that was in a little season of my life. I'm pretty sure you guys can connect to this next phase when Legos, and which Lego sets you had, was a lot more of a trend for me. I had abandoned my young, immature ways with all the stickers, and now I was into Lego sets and which ones you had. Now, this was back in the day when a, a Lego set would come with like a pad. It was a little square and it had the little pieces on it. And I, I like the moon ones, the space ones. If you saw the Lego movie, you know Benny, the spaceman. He kind of came from that era. And uh, it, every one of the helmets would break, which is why whenever you watch that movie, they have a broken part of his helmet because that's what happened to all of our helmets back in the day. 
But I, I would rank Lego sets. And if I went in and I talked with other kids in my school, we would have our top 10 Lego sets. Well, later on when I was playing volleyball, I like to think who were the, the top 10 volleyball players. And if you're not into scratch and sift stickers or Legos or volleyball players, my guess is there's something you care about. And you know, in this kind of category of interest you've got, you know what are the top 10 things Who's the best? Who's less good? Who's kind of down in the bottom, you know? There's ways that we just rank ourselves. And the guy who comes to Jesus, he's got something he cares about as well. His question to Jesus is this, which law is the number one law? That's the thing he cares about. Because his job was to be a scribe. Now, we don't have a lot of scribes today. And maybe the best way of thinking about what a scribe is in Jesus' time is not to think kind of like the Sanhedrin, or sorry, like the Pharisees or the Sadducees, those members of the Sanhedrin. Those are different groups. But just like if we might have a couple groups today, and that group needs a lawyer, and this group needs a lawyer, and that group needs a lawyer, that's kind of the way it was in Jesus' day, except for you didn't call them lawyers, you called them scribes. So scribes were important. They knew whether you were this member, this part, this part, whatever group you were in. Everybody kind of needed a scribe in order to keep the rules together. And this scribe has been listening to what Jesus has been talking about. He's hearing the way other people are asking him questions. And he comes to Jesus and asks, which commandment is the most important of all? It's really a good question to ask, isn't it? If you thought about going to school, kids, or staying home, however you choose to do school, and you go in, there's probably some rules, and there's some rules that you probably don't need to know. They're not all that important. Then there are other rules that are like really, really important. If I go into one of our Sunday school rooms, I see a few rules that are listed up on the rules. Well, what might be kind of a really important rule if you went to Sunday school? There, that's, this is, this is going to be a question for the littles, not for the bigs, all right? So adults, you've got to keep your impulse to answer this question to yourself. And I am asking a question of the little ones. If you were to go back into Sunday school, what would be one of the most important rules for you to follow? Okay, here we go. We've got some enthusiasm. Basil, tell me. Ears open, very good. I think I've seen that one on the rule. Be a good listener. That is a very important rule. What's another important rule? Keep your hands to yourself. So a classroom of kids, all of whom touching each other and not listening to the teacher. Most of the teachers say that would be chaos. And so we need these two most important rules. Make sure you're listening and make sure your hands are to yourself. What's another rule? Uh, Say that again. Mouths quiet. Hmm? That's a good rule. I get where you're coming from. Any other rules? Any other rules? So make sure that you're not talking when you shouldn't be talking. Make sure you're not touching somebody. Make sure you're listening. And I will just say, adults, these are good rules for the sermon too, don't you think? If you guys were all just over hugging each other, talking, not listening, that would be that would be chaos. One more rule. What would be another good rule? Stay with the group. You know, these are probably rules that aren't just for kids. 
and not just for adults. These would probably be kids that no matter what age you lived in, what time you lived in, even in the temple day where Jesus was, you think they probably had rules kind of like, hey, keep your hands to yourselves. Maybe. Hey, when the priest is talking, don't say anything. Keep your mouth quiet. Keep your ears open. Stay with the group. Those would be good rules. There were other rules. 613 of them. Can you imagine if Sunday school had 613 rules? That'd be crazy, wouldn't it? I think it would. But that's how many rules there were when you came into the temple. And not just when you came into the temple, but when you left the temple, you still had to follow the 613 rules. And all the lawyers of the day, and all the Pharisees of the day, and all the Sadducees of the day, they were always debating, what's the most important rule? Which rule is number one? And if we were talking about scratch and sniff stickers, I could tell you. If we're talking about Lego sets, I could tell you. Or Josiah could tell you if, you know, he kind of pointed you to me. I'm going to do the same. If you're wondering about some of the more, you know, trendy Lego sets, Josiah's your man. So just in case you want to ask anybody a question. But when you do, keep your hands to yourself, okay? All right. See, that's the question that these guys are asking too. What rule is the most important rule? What commandment is most important of all? There's a guy named Michael Card who wrote a book, and I read it because he wrote about this verse. Here's what he wrote. The scribe's question is a popular one. In the first century, Judaism acknowledged 613 separate commandments. It was said that the prophet Amos reduced all the commandments to one. And in essence, the scribe is asking Jesus to do the same thing. In other words, this isn't a new question. It's a popular question. It's an ancient question. And it's the question that the guy brings to Jesus and says, we've got all these rules. They would even call some the heavy rules and the light rules. Or if you thought about kind of like a mountain, there were some rules that sort of formed the base of the mountain and some rules that kind of defined the peak of the mountain. Now, if you're a mountain climber or you see pictures of mountains or if you like Max operating systems and you know how they name all their stuff off of different mountains, mountains are usually known not by all the rocks at the bottom, are they? Most mountains, if you know mountains, somebody shows you a picture of a mountain, they show you the top. That's what the, the mountain is kind of defined by. It's defined by its peak. It's defined by the most important rocks. And in the mountain, the rubble pile of all the laws, both the ones that God had given and the ones that people had invented, the 613, which is most important. That's the question that's right there. And there's an answer. And Jesus takes the question that's given to him. And it, what's interesting is he doesn't do what he's done with some of the others. Hey, by what authority did you tip over those tables? Well, answer me this and I'll answer that. That was the way Jesus handled one of them. He didn't really answer the question because he knew he was being set up. Even last week when we looked at the question of whether or not you're supposed to pay taxes, the answer is yes, by the way. Jesus doesn't really give a very 
full answer, not a helpful answer in the way that sort of defines exactly what to do and what not to do. Jesus answers this question, though, differently. He doesn't ask a question back because it's not a stupid question. It's actually a really good question. Because we may not know all of the 613 laws that these guys had, but you've got some rules you live your life by, don't you? Some of them are really clear. They're up on the whiteboard, and you know, don't touch. Make sure you talk at the right times. Make sure you listen at the right times. Stay with the group. These are all things so that they ensure the survival of the group, which is a, you know, the number one goal of children's ministry teachers. Make sure we get the kids back alive and in one piece. That's, that's a good rule for the teachers. But we've got some that are less clear, don't we? Maybe rules that you sort of learned by imitating your family. This is the way we live. Now, some of those laws can be really good. Some of them can be really bad. But the family laws that we learn, not because they're declared, but because we imitate them, those are really powerful rules. You have to make sure and ask questions of the rules that we have. And so really, this isn't just an important question to the scribe. It's not just an important question to Jesus. This is a really important question for us to get the answer to as well. And Jesus doesn't exactly just list some of the laws and say, well, of the 613, let me give you the top 10%, okay? 61.3 laws that I want you to know. That would have been reducing it down a little bit, but he doesn't reduce it down that much. Reduces it down way more, and here's his answer. Jesus said the most important is... Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's not a rule, is it? It's the preamble to a rule. It's the setup to a rule. It's Jesus saying, of all the places to go in the book of Leviticus, or some of the laws that you could read in Exodus, or the repetition of those laws in Deuteronomy, the place I want you to start and to think most heavily about is Deuteronomy 6. Everybody knew this one. God is one God. There's not a law that necessarily comes out of that, like make sure you don't make many gods. That was one of the laws. But the law that came out of the fact that God is one, that Jesus points to, is that you are to love the Lord your God. That's really the law. There's some definition to it that he's going to get to. But the main part of the law is if God is one, meaning there aren't a bunch of other gods, like if you go make friends with any of your neighbors around when you were living at Jesus' day or any of the days before Jesus as a Jew, almost every neighbor you'd meet in another country did not say that there was one God. There was one God for one area. But if you left that area, there'd be a new God for that other area. Jesus, though, is saying across everything there is one God. And the story of the one God who made everything wants you to love him. Now, if we thought about love the way sometimes we talk about love, this wouldn't sound too much, you know, like a big deal, was it? Do you love your mommy? (laughs) Yes, I love my mommy. And mommy, if you're watching, I love you. Daddy, you too. I love you too. We, we, we have affection for people, right? If you said you love stickers, 
or Legos or volleyball or whatever the thing is that came to your mind. You might be thinking of love kind of that way. Like, you've done things for me and I have warm affection for you. That's sort of what the relationship with God is like. But look at the way that he defines what it's supposed to be like. You are to love the Lord your God, and then he lists four ways to do it. With or from your heart. And we think of heart, we might think of love kind of the way we were just talking about it, right? Valentine's Day love. Oh, I have a crush for God. Oh, God's my boyfriend. Like, not really. That's not what he means by heart. Maybe a better way of thinking about heart, the way we talk about it, would be your guts, which is kind of gross. But that's not the way we usually talk about guts, right? If I say, that guy's got some guts, what I'm talking about, he's got some courage. He's got some resolve. He's got some stamina that when things get hard, he keeps going, right? You think about a weightlifter at the end of a set where they're really tired and they keep going, not because they're strong, but because there's something in their guts. Those aren't their muscles, but it's their courage, their ability to keep going when things are difficult. That's the first way God says, Jesus says that he wants us to love God. Love God with all your convictions. Love God with the core of who you are, with what really drives and motivates you. Love God with all your soul. Now, I will tell you right at the very beginning of this list, as we start to look at the difference between your heart and your soul, and then the difference between your soul and your strength, and the difference between your strength and your mind, which are the four things that Jesus said, it's really kind of hard. And I, I read a few books about people who were kind of dividing these things out, and even they had a little bit of trouble. And that's kind of the point. It's like saying, I looked everywhere, to the north, to the south, to the east, to the west. What am I saying? I'm saying, I looked everywhere. If you heard me say that, you wouldn't probably go, oh, so you didn't look to the northwest? What about the north and northwest? What about 79 degrees? No, you wouldn't do that, would you? You'd know that what I was saying is I looked everywhere because I talked about these four points that kind of encompass everywhere. That's sort of the way Jesus is saying you're supposed to love God. In other words, you're supposed to love God with everything. So love him with the core of what excites and motivates you. That which he calls your heart. Love him with that which is sort of different than just all your bodily appetites. Love him by giving him all of your desires to connect that who he is as an invisible yet real being because we know there's some part of us that we can't quite see that still yearns for something with God and we want to connect that desire to God. Jesus says, love God with that as well. And if you have ability, if you have strength, if you've got the capacity to do things that's really spectacular, then don't be like the strongest guy that we could think of in the Bible. Who's the, who's the strongest guy that we could think of in the Bible? Samson. Samson, very good over there. That was well done because you knew exactly when to speak because you were using your ears. I can't say anything about your hands necessarily, but nicely done there, Basil. Oh, very good. I See, you're getting three out of four of them right now, and you're staying with the group. This is just wonderful. Be like Basil, everybody. 
I'm glad for that. Jacob, how are you doing with your hands? All right, fantastic. The Brzee family is just knocking it out of the park right now. I just want to let you know. What was it about Samson? Strongest guy out there, right? And yet, what do he use his strength for? Revenge? Love? Lust? Really, he used his strength for himself. There's a lot of people out there who have got this capacity for God. It could be strength like Samson with strong, or the one right before that. It could be strength in terms of the way that you think. You're a smart person. You're a funny person. You're a popular person. You're, you're pretty entertaining. What Jesus is saying is, I don't care what facet we're talking about who you are. If I asked you, give yourself a report card, just grade yourself. What do you get an A in? What aspect of you do you think, if other people were grading you, they'd say, oh, he gets an A in that. She's really good at that. 110% in that category. That category, that's what Jesus wants you to give to God as an expression of your love. You a good thinker? Are you a good entertainer? Are you able to do things that other people can't do? Are you able to stick to it in such a way that you can really persevere even when things get hard? That ought to be the description of your love for God. What's the most important rule, Jesus? Love God with everything. Now, if the scribe had heard Jesus say, Jesus, here's my question. There are 613 laws. Which is the most important? And Jesus said, yeah, 613 is a lot. I'm going to boil it down to one. How do you think that scribe would have felt? Oh, this is going to be great. I've only got to worry about one thing. This is going to simplify everything. All I have to do is this one thing. How do you think he feels after Jesus says this? Can we go back to the 613? Because that seems a lot easier to me. I have to take everything I have, every impulse, every thought, every desire, every conversation, every relationship, every talent I have, and I have to use it as an expression of telling God how much I love him? Yes, Jesus says. Oh. If I look at that mountain, that peak looks really high up there, doesn't it? But Jesus says we're not quite done. It's not just those four. He says in verse 31, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now Jesus could have said, you need to take all those talents and all those abilities. And when you're relating to somebody else, you need to prioritize them. That probably would have been accurate too. But instead he decided to say this, What do you do when you get cold? Anybody? What do you do when you get cold? Basil, what do you do when you get cold? You put on a coat. Thank you. I'm not sure why the rest of you couldn't get that. That one seemed kind of simple. If you didn't have a coat, what else might you do if you were cold? Okay, that's very good. I'm going to point in other directions here. What would you do if you got cold? You might go inside if you were outside. Seasonally, that would make a lot of sense right now. What else would you do? 
You would curl up like a squirrel, which is going back to the shivering thing. You might put on a blanket. You might ask somebody for a hug. What would you do if you were cold? The simple answer is this. You do something about it, right? Because you're cold. Jesus says, that's what you do if somebody else is cold. What would you do if you were hungry? You would eat something, right? Everybody knew that one. It's okay. We didn't need to call in the experts quite yet. You'd eat something if you were hungry. Because you're hungry. And you're pretty important. And if you didn't have something to eat, then what? You'd porridge. There are no bad answers today. That's... I set myself up for that, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Jesus said, you know how dedicated you are to making sure that when you're cold, you're doing better? That when you're hurting, you're doing better? That when you're hungry, you're doing better? That dedication. That's the way I want you loving someone else. You are supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. But here's where it gets harder. This isn't in Mark, but it is in Matthew, and it would have been one of those things that that people would have remembered that Jesus said. Because he said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor, (laughs) right? And hate your enemy. Meaning, you love God because he's always done good to you, right? And you love your neighbor, meaning the people who also do good to you. In other words, treat other people well if, and only if, they treat you well. That would be a way of kind of messing with Jesus' words, but that's not what it says. It doesn't say, love your little brother whenever he's super gentle and kind. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, love your little brother when he's doing good and hate your little brother when he's annoying. He used the word neighbor and enemy. That's the way people would have thought. And he said, that's what you've been hearing. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute and annoy you so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. Wait, why, is it, why does me treating somebody else well when they're my enemy actually connect me to God? Because Jesus said that's what God does. He makes his son rise on evil people and on good people and he sends rain to just people and to unjust people. So if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And right after that, he says in this version, don't even the Gentiles do the same. When I was a teacher and I was teaching this verse to the kids, we learned it from a different version of the Bible that at the end said, don't even the pagans do the same. And one of my kids said, I think I'm going to try and remember this as if I just do nice things for nice people, and if I just do good things to good people, that's pagan love. And I was like, that's, that's not a bad point. The way the world acts, just like Brad was saying, why we need to rethink how we relate to God and others, how, just like we need to be reformed. The way the world thinks is just the way the Catholic Church was thinking. You basically have to earn God's love by doing good. You basically get good when you're good, and you get punished when you're bad. That's the way the world works, and that's primarily the way that God works, and that's not the good news at all. 
That's not the good news in the least. God gives good to those who don't deserve it. That's the way God is. And Jesus said, if you want to be kind of your father's son, if you want to be a daughter of God, then you have to imitate him in that way too. You can't just go for this tax collector love, this Gentile love, this pagan love. You're called to love like God. Godly love doesn't just love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Godly love loves those who persecute you and prays for your enemies. That's what this kind of love does. And that's what Jesus is saying. Love God and others with everything. And if you do that, all the rules aren't even that important. Jesus says it this way. There's no other commandment that's better. None of the other laws are better than these. Love God and others with everything. In fact, you could probably say, if you did that, if you really truly defined your life and your rules for life based on, do I want to love God with everything I've got and do I want to love other people as I would love myself, would I be that dedicated? I don't probably even need the rest of the rules. I can probably just love God. A long time ago, a man named Augustine said this, what does love look like? It has hands to help others. It has feet to hasten to the poor and needy. It has eyes to see misery and need and ears to hear the sighs and sorrows of men. That is what love looks like. So there's been a question. There's been an answer. And just like in school, it's time for the grade. The question is, who's grading who? Who's the teacher and who's the student? If you took it kind of the way we see it right here, then it's pretty clear. The scribe is the teacher. Jesus is the student. The scribe has asked the question. Jesus has given the answer. And it's time for the scribe to give his grade. And he says, you are right. But then he calls him a teacher. You are right, rabbi. You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one. There is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is as much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Here, he takes everything Jesus said, the laws he refers to, and he quotes a prophet. He says, people have been saying this for a long time. More important than following all the temple rules and all the sacrificial rules is to love God with the way that we live and to love other people as though they're as important, if not more important, than we are. And so Jesus, you got it right. But then Jesus turns and decides to give him a grade too. And this, I think, is the scariest part of the message. What he says is, you're close. It would seem like if this scribe and Jesus agreed on what's the most important law, then what Jesus should say to him is, you're in. 
You're a disciple. You're a believer. You're a Christian. You're in the kingdom of God. But what Jesus says to him is, you're so close. You're oh, so very close. Jesus says it this way. You are not far from the kingdom of God. The scribe just called him the teacher, and so Jesus takes his role as the teacher and says, let me give you a grade now. Everything you understand shows that you're ready to enter. The question is, will you? Because here's the tricky thing. Another guy I read a book from said it this way. We must not shut our eyes to this fact. Nowhere are we told that this man became one of our Lord's disciples. On this point, there is a mournful silence. And we are left to draw the painful conclusion that, like the rich young man, he could not make up his mind to give up all and follow Christ. In short, though not far from the kingdom of God, he probably never entered. Sorry, that should say never. He probably never entered and died outside of it. That's so sad. In fact, what I really liked is the way that J.C. Rao reminds us of that rich young ruler. Do you remember the rich young ruler? He was the one who came up to Jesus and said, what do I need to do to have eternal life? What do I need to do to be a part of this kingdom you're going to set up that's going to last forever? What do I do to get rescued from all the ways that the world lives and to be drawn into what God's doing? What do I need to do? And Jesus said, well, you know all the commandments, right? And he's like, yeah, I got them all covered. I've done them all. Ever since I was a kid, I've, I've obeyed all the laws. And Jesus said, there's one more thing. You take all that money that makes you rich and give it all away so that you're poor. And then, once you're poor, come follow me. See, what Jesus is saying to that rich young man is probably really similar to what he's trying to tell the scribe. Knowing everything about God, even getting all the answers right, isn't enough. Because both the rich young man and the scribe were probably erring in one big way. They thought they could do it. And the gospel, the good news of the Bible, isn't that we can do it. Because if you think about all the laws that the scribe was talking about, most of those laws are about how to be forgiven, how to remember things that you forget. Why? Because the people of God are sinful and forgetful. And because they're sinful, they need to be forgiven through all the sacrifices. And because they're forgetful, they need to be reminded through all the feasts. And all these laws were be able to say, you can't do it and you need me to bring you back. But the rich young man and this old scribe came to Jesus and said, I still think I can do it. And Jesus said, you're still outside. I said at the end of the sermon, we're going to take communion, and that's what we're going to prepare to do now. So Joe and Phil are going to come back, and they're going to lead us in the beginning of a song. But I want to remind us that when we take communion, and kids, sometimes you're in when we do this, and sometimes you guys are back. Let me remind you of what communion is. Communion is a way of saying that we recognize that what we have done to God in sinning should result 
in a punishment that's so severe it would cost us our lives. And any person who looks at God and says, I can pay that without you, I can bleed and I can suffer and I can struggle and I can change myself enough that you'll finally be pleased with me and you'll have to forgive me because of how good I am, a person has no place in the kingdom of God. He's outside, just like the scribe. But what we do when we're taking communion is we're saying we needed someone to die for us, to suffer for us, and to be broken and to bleed in our place so that we didn't have to die, but that we might live. Christians look to Jesus' suffering, his obedience, his perfection, not to our own. So what I want us to do is to be able to think that through a little bit. We're going to do that through this first song. And then after Phil's led us in it a little bit, I'm going to come back up and lead us in taking communion. So why don't we stand? And let's sing together, but let me pray first. Father, your word is powerful, and I thank you so much that the kids could be in with us as we looked at this question of what's most important. Lord, I pray that what we've talked about wouldn't be forgotten, but that right now your spirit would remind us of how much we needed Jesus and how kind you were to send him to us. Father, I pray, meet us now as we sing and prepare our hearts to take this uh, communion together.